it's Imogen from Squarepeg. So last year, I landed in London's Gatwick Airport with an infection. It wasn't serious, but I knew I needed antibiotics and I needed them fast. I felt miserable, but there was a problem. It was 2 p.m. on a Friday, and although I'm English, I've never lived in London, so I don't have a doctor there. And to be honest, after eight years in Australia, I couldn't even really remember how to go about booking an appointment with a local GP. And so after frantically calling GP's clinics in my area, I realized that even if I could find a clinic, none of them had appointments anyway. So I was stressed, to put it mildly. And so I did what all people with a vague crisis seemed to do. I Googled it, typing emergency doctor appointment in London and praying to the gods just to grant me this tiny, tiny bit of mercy. And up popped this number that I could call to find an available GP. Genius because after a two and a half minute conversation with someone on the phone, I was booked in for a 39 pound appointment with a GP who was based at a chemist, not 85 meters from my Airbnb. But on arriving, I realized it wasn't quite what I thought. Behind the door, quote, to the doctor's office, was not a doctor, but a screen with some basic medical instruments like a blood pressure kit attached. And after staring kind of blankly for five minutes, up popped a very nice GP on video. And within 30 minutes of my initial call, I'd consulted the doctor, been prescribed antibiotics, and collected them from the chemist. The experience was magical, and it felt like living in the future. And that's what we're here to talk about, the future of healthcare, with someone who's building it, Lim Wymun the founder and CEO at Doctor Anywhere, a healthcare company that's pioneering telehealth in Southeast Asia. But Wyman's story to entrepreneurship starts life in Singapore in a pretty tragic way. I must say that I have grown up in a very atypical way, right? So uh, in Singapore, my mom passed away when I was uh, four to five years old and my dad left the family as well. Uh, So I grew up with my grandparents. And that also meant that I started working pretty young, right, when I was uh, 11 years old. So I have been exposed to the social university much younger than most other kids out there. When I was in primary school, I was already selling stuff. So I was, um, (laughs) I remember there was was this day, so my grandma gave me 50 cents uh, for the day. So I didn't have my lunch. Uh, I went to a sticker shop, saw a bunch of stickers, and I was thinking, hmm, you know, can I use my 50 cents to buy this and then sell it to my friends? And that's what I did. So the first batch, I remember I, I bought the much bigger stickers. And it didn't sell so well, right? I recouped my 50 cents, but it didn't sell so well because people didn't want their parents to know that they've been buying stickers. So I was like, hmm, okay, maybe I should buy something smaller. So then I bought this earrings-looking stickers that you can put it on your earlobes. Uh, and that sold really fast, right, to my female students, uh, friends in school. And um, I would do that on a weekly basis. You know, uh, I would buy for 50 cents and I would sell for like 250. So that's how I managed to make some money to supplement my own income when I was in primary school. This was an extraordinary start to life for a kid in Singapore, but it taught him some pretty fundamental lessons. A lot. Um, doing the dishes in Chinese restaurants, that was most of it because I couldn't be a waiter. I wasn't old enough. I wasn't old looking enough, so they wouldn't put me on the front line. Uh, so I was really happy when I hit 14 years old and 
they pushed me to the front line because that's when I finally got the air-conditioned room to serve the food and not be surrounded by cockroaches and rats. Yeah. <laughs> so that really shaped my thinking. And I would say that today when I look at the world, I must say that I'm a little bit more skeptical than most people because I have seen different type of people uh, throughout my life. And I must say that it wasn't the prettiest uh, when I was uh, younger. Typically, I would say that most kids would start working maybe part-time, 16 years old, probably. Yeah, but you know, for me, it was 11 years old. And that, I would say, kind of influenced my thinking, the way I approach situation. So one example is that whenever I start talking to somebody, my first instinct would have been to understand what the person's agenda is. That would have been a key survival skill for me when I was 11. Because I was very young and obviously I had to size people up pretty fast to make sure that I don't put myself in a disadvantaged position. And unlike many kids, privileged kids, who get to dream about what they'll be when they grow up, Wyman's dreams were far more practical. It wasn't about being a doctor or a teacher or a scientist because he was just so focused on making it through the day with his family. It's hard to have a vision in life when you are just living by the day, right? So I was living by the day. My grandma, to be honest, I mean, she's still the closest to me in my life, but she came from a pretty old school way of thinking, which is as a kid, you should try to earn money as early as possible uh, to make sure that you keep the family alive, right? So there was no vision, right? The vision would be tomorrow, right? And to study, to get there. And, and I think that's something that really worked out very well in Singapore. I think the government has done a pretty good job in making sure that most Singaporeans, if not all Singaporeans, would have an equal opportunity to make it work in school. Wyman was a smart kid. He ended up studying mechanical engineering at the University of Singapore, a university which consistently ranks in the top 15 universities worldwide. But Wyman didn't really have a big love of mechanical engineering. It wasn't as if this was his passion. It was just kind of a simple choice. So a lot of my friends were just going into engineering. And at that point in time, it just made sense for me to, to, get, to get in there. Um, would I do it again? Uh, answer is I don't think I would do mechanical engineering again because it is not the easiest. But I would say that going through mechanical engineering is, has been good as well. In, in, in a way, it helped to train a more logical mind. It formed my mind in a way that when I look at problems, I look at it from a very different way. Just to give you an example, when you put a science student and engineering student to solve one problem, the approach is very different. For a science student, they look at it and they say, okay, what is fundamentally wrong with this? For an engineering student, you actually don't really care what's fundamentally wrong. You are just there to find a solution. And I think that is something that is important in the context of what's happening today, you know, when I'm doing my work within Doctor Anywhere, which is when we are presented with challenges, with issues. Sometimes we don't really ask what's wrong first, but we solve the problem first. Wyman was also, unsurprisingly, a good student at uni. He was ambitious. He wanted to land a really good job at the other side of university. And for Wyman, a good job meant financial security. A good job meant money. And as he progressed through his course, he started looking seriously at his next steps. 
So I might sound a little bit materialistic when I say this, but it was in year three when I was studying in uh, NUS, engineering school. And I asked one of my professors, I said, hey, you know, I'm trying to get an internship as an engineer, right? So I want to just understand how does it look like in terms of the pay range, right? And what are we talking about when I graduate? And that leads back to during my early days, right? Because money would have been a very important resource for me. So that was a very natural question for me to ask. And my professor told me that it's pretty good pay, right? When you first start off, you're looking at uh, probably four to four thousand five hundred dollars a month, sing dollars as a salary. Then I was like, oh, okay, not too bad, right? And my next question was, so what would happen in 10 years' time? And he was like, well, you know, the increment might be a bit slow for, for engineers in general. Uh, so maybe you're looking at 8,000, 7,000. And I was like, what? You know, after 10 years, it does sound a little bit slow. That's when I asked around and I was asking my friends like, hey, you know, what's the job that can really pay me well? And I graduated in year 2007. Uh, if you remember during that time, it was the peak of the financial markets, right? So everyone was trying to get a job in the bank, whatever job, right? Uh, as long as you're talking about a, a Goldman Sachs, a Credit Suisse, a, a Deutsche Bank, so and so forth, you are golden. So I, I remember I wrote into about 500 companies for internship just to be an analyst. And I was lucky, managed to secure one. And after I ended my first internship as a research associate in an equity research house, I remember there was no turning back for me because I would say that it was quite addictive for me. And it was vastly different from what I was studying and I never looked back. In his quest to find a well-paying job with a big growth potential, Wyman had stumbled into the highfalutin world of finance. And this is when his focus began to shift entirely away from engineering. And what surprised him was how interesting the work was too. It's very different from engineering work. We typically look at structures and you look at forces and you know you dissect them and you understand how to create or form a, a stable structure, for example, right? Everything is, I would say, steel. It's not that there is nothing coming back to you, right? You just look at a structure and then you analyze it. You know, the financial market is very different. Every second is changing. It's very dynamic. You have to make decisions very, very quickly. So the excitement in understanding that, you know, the world doesn't stand still and it's moving every second, it changed my mind. And it was, I would say that it was also very much fitted into how I grew up. Wyman decided to focus exclusively on getting a job in the finance industry. And although he was up against students with a degree in economics and finance, Wyman landed an analyst role at Standard Chartered Bank, a financial institution with over 720 billion US dollars in assets under management. He'd hit the big leagues. They worked me really hard, right? And uh, I must say that it would have been typically going home post-midnight with them. But I think that first two years of my professional life also kind of shaped what I think today, which is there is no such thing as a shortcut, right? If you really want to do very well at what you're doing, yes, you might be smarter than the rest, right? Uh, or you might be not as smart as any, anyone else. It doesn't matter. But hard work is something that you have to do to get to somewhere. 
So for the first two years, I remember I wasn't meeting my friends. You know, I wasn't going out with anyone. Anytime available, I'm just kind of spending in the office, doing financial modeling, preparing for pitch decks and so forth to go to the IC to get investment approvals. So that was my life. But what was rewarding, I would say, uh, would have been that when I finally caught up with my friends and realized that I was a lot more advanced in terms of understanding investments, in terms of understanding a particular sector that I was doing a lot of research in. And I think that helped me to then speed up my investment mind. And then that got me into my next job, which is in Tamasek. Tamasek is an investments company wholly owned by the Singaporean government. It is the brand to work for in Singapore. Not only is it notoriously hard to get hired there, but it's an unusual beast, as unlike many sovereign wealth funds, it mostly invests in equities, owns many assets outright, and pays taxes. With a mission to transform economies, grow middle-income populations, deepen Singapore's advantage, and back emerging champions, it's an ambitious, mission-driven investment company. And Wyman loved the flexibility of investment instruments that Temasek used, from convertible notes to big check escrow equity. But he was mostly attracted to one element. There was also another additional element of the third pillar of Temasek, which is to be a good steward of the Singapore's reserve. So as a Singaporean, that was something that really resonated with me. And the question has always been, how do I as a Singaporean help with that? And that was something that really attracted me, I would say. And that was something that also led me to uh, work on another project that was kind of born out of Tamasic as well. So in Tamasic, together with my mentor, we started this company called Pavilion Energy. So it's very unusual, right? Uh, you see a big brand name investment house starting a company. It's not a startup, right? Just to be clear, it's not a startup because it was funded with a lot of cash. Right, so it's not like what we are going through right now at, at DA, but it's starting a company and to a certain extent a national project. Right. And I remember few people wanted to do it and you know I, I just raised my hand for it and eventually that benefited me in a way that because when I was working on the entire from zero to maybe 0.5 or one of pavilion energy, that gave me a glimpse of how Starting a company can be fun. Pavilion Energy is an energy company that focuses on liquefied natural gas. It's wholly owned by Temasek and invests up and downstream to become a full-stack gas supplier and trader. It was Wyman's first experience really building something. And though he spoke at length about what he learned from Temasek, where he worked for over nine years, the lesson that stayed with him was a simple one. One of the key things, and it's still very close to my heart today, is that there's actually no such thing as a bad investment per se. Uh, unless you're talking about really, you know, a company that's not doing sales or whatsoever, right? I'm talking about slightly more mature companies. There is really nothing wrong with looking at it and understanding that there is a value in every company. And as an investor, your key job is to structure a risk mitigation plan, right? So. Look, there is no such thing as high reward, high growth, and low risk. No such thing, right? If you want uh, high reward, you will be taking on a much bigger risk. So 
the question is that you can't really control the growth, but what can you do in that process, right? Is to understand how you can control the risk. And to understand how you can control the risk is to figure out how to structure a deal that is able to help you to reduce the risk in the event of certain things happening, at least you can recover some of the capital, right? And I think that is something that is very important for most investors out there to understand, and especially in the areas whereby VCs, for example, you have very high risk in the sector, but at the same time, it's high reward. Wyman is now the CEO and founder of Dr. Anywhere. It was founded in 2015 in Singapore and now operates across Singapore, Vietnam, and Thailand, allowing anyone to consult a doctor or health professional online and have medication delivered to their door within hours. They've expanded into other health verticals and have an offline component that serves over a million customers. But at the beginning, Dr. Anywhere, or DA as you'll often hear Wyman refer to it, was a pretty simple idea and it started life at Temasek. Uh, every year we have to be out there doing charity work. One of it that I did was you know, going door to door in older estates in Singapore to be hanging uh, lunch boxes. And it was then that I saw that there were still older folks in Singapore who couldn't afford to get out of their home to see a doctor. Right? So I saw a space that I think, a gap that I think could be covered. And it wasn't done in, in, with the commercial mind. It was just done with like, hey, you know, uh, why don't we try to do something here, you know, to, to bridge the gap. Initially, it was an app that I did that there was just one button for uh, that person to press on and a doctor is supposed to be notified. And then if they were to pass by the estate, they can go up to the place to see the patient. And then I was asking for, you know, some doctors for pro bono hours and they still want to get paid. Uh, so... I would say the response was really lukewarm. And when I look at what we have done and what I have on hand, uh, I was like, mm, okay, what can I do with this? That's when I thought, hey, you know, why don't I make some tweaks, change it from house call to a video call, and ultimately then kind of commercialized it. Admittedly, I'm not the first employee of Doctor Anywhere. There were a few before me. This was a side gig that I had a team running when I was still working in Tomasic. And eventually, I resigned from Tamasic December 2018. Uh, and I think they were kind. They were really kind enough to say that, hey, you know what? Why don't you just take your time, right? If you're not joining a competitor, why don't you just take one year off on a no-pay leave, right? And just work on your gig, right? And if you're successful, then we'll all be very happy for you. But if not, you can come back, right? We'll take it that you're gone for MBA. That, I must say, that is one of the most attractive thing about Tomasic, right? They understand and they find balance between what the employee wants and also what would be beneficial for their ecosystem and they try to strike a balance. And I must say that's also something that if possible is a DNA that I want to bring into Doctor Anywhere as well, right? Because we have to understand that everyone would have their own way of thinking. Everyone would have what they have in their own mind on what they want to achieve in life. And as a company, as an employer, we must be there to stand behind what our people want and help them to develop it if possible. So I took one year off to build on Doctor Anywhere. Uh, that was in year 2019. So I wasn't getting paid uh, for the whole year. It was painful, right? <laughs> uh, but somehow or rather, it was during that time that the company grew tremendously. 
and we also managed to secure a Series A funding. And I would say pretty much that that was the end of the story in the sense that I then left Temasek and I, and I was working on this full time. It was a big decision to leave his prestigious, well-paying role at Temasek for a startup. The 11-year-old kid who washed pots still craved security and stability. And though we all now live in a post-COVID world, in 2015, you'd be hard-pressed to find a big group of people who believed in telehealth. Plus, people just don't leave Temasek to go build a startup. At least, not in 2015. So Wyman was definitely going against the grain to even consider building Doctor Anywhere. And to me, then, what should be the focus? Right. Is it still salary? You know, is it still pay, bonus, so and so forth? Or is there something more in life that I want to pursue? And at the point in time, I think Doctor Anywhere is something that I think it was a catalyst for me to say that, okay, you know, now given this opportunity, should I act on it? And the answer was yes. Back then, nobody believed in telehealth. Right. We started off as a telehealth company, which means that you could see a, a doctor, a GP doctor, over a video call. And after the video call and the doctor would prescribe medication, if you purchase it, we send it to your home. Right? It's a very new concept and nobody believed in it. Why? Because in Singapore, I think we have done a very good job in creating a very established primary care network. So in every neighborhood that you have in Singapore, you can find a primary care clinic. And when I was talking to doctors about this, all of them trashed me, right? And they were like, you know, I think you're wasting your time because this doesn't work in Singapore. Maybe in a country like Australia, in the US, where you have very big area, it might work, right? But for Singapore, no, not really. But then I asked myself the question, then why did it work for Deliveroo, Food Panda, right? Grab food, so and so forth, right? Because theoretically, you walk downstairs, you can also find a food store, right? But why does it work, right? And I think my answer was that I think people were looking for efficiency. I think people were looking to buy time. Why go to queue in a clinic when you are sick, when you can just see a doctor within a few minutes, get a prescription, and while waiting for that, you can either be resting or be watching Netflix on a sofa. So that was the point where I realized that that was something that people did not see, right? And that was something that I thought I would want to take a bet on. And somehow or rather, you know, we were growing still quite nicely before COVID. But COVID has absolutely been the catalyst for the whole sector. And now telehealth made sense to everyone globally, right? Everyone thinks that, wow, and for hospital, they were thinking we should have invested a little bit more money on this. Not to say that the pandemic is good globally for everyone. But I think in certain sectors, like in telehealth, I think it has definitely helped to fast track certain adoption rate. And now the question for us is then, how do we make people stay on the platform post-pandemic? Let's talk about the platform for a moment, because it's important for you to really appreciate the beauty and ease of Doctor Anywhere by stepping through it. So I'll let Wyman give you the user experience. So at the core of it, you download our app, you look for a doctor or you can grab a doctor, whoever that's available, onto a video call. So a doctor would typically diagnose you over a video call, and after a video call, a doctor would then prescribe a medication. It would then pop up in your screen like a, like a WhatsApp alert, right, to tell you that, hey, doctor, I prescribed medication for you. 
you can choose which medication you want to purchase. So like for example, if a doctor prescribed painkiller, you might have a lot at home and you might not want to have it. You can you know deselect that option. And you pay for it. After you pay for it, then the next thing you see is that in 90 minutes time, typically, the parcel of medication will appear at your home and then you just consume them. So that is our telehealth experience. But I think something that has been uh, also doing quite well for us uh, in the region is this thing called home-based health screening and vaccination. So you can book for a nurse on our platform. And next thing that will happen is that uh, a nurse would then call you to confirm on the timing to go to your place and can be administered at your home or even uh, vaccination for young kids can be done as well. And increasingly, we're also seeing quite a fair bit of interest in doing uh, health screening at home, right? So our nurses come in to your place, draw your blood, send in for blood test, and then the report can be retrieved in our app. Yeah, so these are all very popular services that we are getting. And increasingly, we're also seeing quite a number of people using our marketplace. Our marketplace sells everything in healthcare. Uh, you have vitamins, you have wellness, you can book an instructor, gym instructor session on the app. And so we are now starting to see conversion of users across various sub-segments within our app. When I asked about the early days of Dr. Anywhere, Wyman told me that there were two major problems he faced. The first was that the business wasn't just B2C. It's not like Uber where you connect a user to a driver. They get paid and that's the end of it. You have to deal with a third-party payer, insurance. And patients wouldn't use Dr. Anywhere if their insurance wouldn't pay for it. And the insurance companies weren't keen to get on board with Dr. Anywhere at first. I think initially the biggest pushback was the loss ratio for them. Okay, now let me give you some background on this. So for insurer, what they do at the core of the business is that they collect premium and they try to control the losses, which means that every time a user consumes healthcare, they don't have to pay for it. And when they pay for it, then they start to chalk up this thing called a loss ratio or loss losses, right? So the best business model for an insurer is that they collect a lot of premium, but they incur very little losses. So controlling that cost is very important for that business. So when we saw that, we were like, okay, the concern here is that if a user just increase on utilization of you know consuming healthcare, for sure the loss ratio will go up and it's logical, right? So the formula is cost per visit multiplied by number of visits a year. And that will give you the total loss. Now, admittedly, I think when you have telehealth, inevitably you start to allow easier access to healthcare. And I think it, it should by right lead to an increase in frequency of consumption, right? But when we look at the other number, which is cost per visit, then the question is how do we influence that cost of visit to a level that you have to increase the frequency of usage so much so that then you are worse off. So just to give you a background, in Singapore, on average, for example, a typical visit offline in a physical clinic, if you are within an insurance network, you are still talking about $50 thereabout per visit. Now, on DA, we are able to do it at about $30. Right, so the savings is 40%. But it also means that for the insurer to be worse off, you need to consume 80% more 
of healthcare before you are worse off from before, right? And to do that means that now your users have to consume healthcare almost every month. And I mean, look, yes, there could be some users who are like this, but I could say that by and large for most users, they wouldn't see a doctor for nothing. So that was how we managed to convince them on the ability for us to control the cost, to reduce the cost for them, so that I think net-net they will be better off from a number perspective. But now also think about from a user experience perspective, it's an innovative product, they're offering something new in the market back then, they would definitely have an edge over their competitors. So that was how we pitched it and I think ultimately they bought in. And in the insurance market, it's a very, what we call a monkey see, monkey do uh, sector, right? When A is doing it and then B will say, oh, okay, look, doing it, let me also try it. And then that really kind of created that spark for telehealth to take off. So the third party payer was problem number one. And problem number two was trust. I think it was consistent feedback that you've got a very sleek app. I like it. But bear in mind that I fall sick four times a year at most. And out of, out of which the four times, maybe two to three times I could use you because of the effectiveness of being treated over telehealth. right? And if I'm just using you for two to three times a year, why should I be keeping you on my phone? And if you're not on my phone, why would I remember you when I fall sick? Because it's just natural for me to go back to my comfort zone when I'm sick. So how do we then create more opportunities for our users to keep us on their phone and to remember to use us? And the answer is not in just focusing on primary care, right? The answer is bigger. The answer lies in how do we create a healthcare ecosystem? So when a user think of healthcare, wellness, for example, they think of Doctor Anywhere, they think of BA. And I think that would have been, you know, what we call MySpace, and that's what we really wanted in our users. Uh, if it's just in medical care, then it becomes too passive. Only when I fall sick, then I would think of you, and that's not gonna work. Right. It, it has to be more than that. And then thinking of how do we pivot towards that broader business of healthcare and wellness uh, then became something that we had to spend a lot of time on. And not just that, right? Because healthcare, medical care is not 100% effectively treatable over a video call, right? And we also had to then now go offline as well to make sure that we get the network of clinics and doctors offline. And all these are actually at the core of it, creating two things. Number one, we are creating good user experience. And number two, more importantly, we are creating trust with our user. And trust is very important in healthcare because if a user does not trust you, they will definitely not use you, right? It's not a one-off transaction. On this trust, it relates very much to why offline business for us. When we first started, our users were asking us, where are your doctors from, right? Are they Singaporeans? Are they in Singapore? Or are they you know, in the US or UK, India, China, whatsoever? Are they qualified? Can they prescribe me with medication? Can they uh, issue me with a medical certificate, right? So all these are questions that if you kind of distill them to one point, 
it means that our users didn't trust us. They didn't trust our platform, right? And then having this offline clinics branding would again help to supplement that trust that a user would give us. Now, a user would say that, oh yeah, you know, for DA doctors, yeah, sure, of course, they are in some, some of these clinics, right? But the truth is that they're not. Some of them, most of them are not actually at our clinics. They're actually at home practicing. Sometimes they do go to our clinic to practice, but most of the time, you know, they are practicing from home. But what has been then successful is that now our users would think that our doctors are from the clinics. They now trust the brand and they use it. As you've heard, Wyman spent a lot of time on the investor side of things before he started up Doctor Anywhere. So when it came to raising money for himself, he said he wasn't really surprised by anything, but he did have to change his way of thinking. It was quite a shift for me to be dealing with private equity uh, investors back then. And then now I'm looking through the lenses of venture capitalists. I think what was really different for me and confusing for me was at first to adapt to being able to raise money even though we were not generating that much revenue. <laughs> so it's a very interesting concept that would never fly in private equity because, you know, what, what is this, right? <laughs> uh, but I think increasingly VC investment is obviously a, a, something that's taking off globally uh, because there were just so many uh, good examples of how VCs managed to back good companies and eventually they cashed out, you know, multiple hundred percent. What I was always being, you know, kind of surprised by has been the part whereby, like for example, Square Pack, when I first met Tush, right? His first question wasn't, what's your number? What, what are your numbers looking like? Right? I remember one of his first few questions was, okay, you're asking for this valuation. How do we now move from this valuation to 10x? Right? And then he would bring me to my whiteboard and then he would say, okay, can you give me a few assumptions here? And then what's the revenue that we would need to get to get there? You know, when we work backwards, you know, how many uh, calls we should be getting, transactions, and so forth. And that was quite refreshing for me, right? That in, enough of whatever, you know, account payable, account receivable, make-believe revenue growth, and gross margin assumptions, and so forth. He basically casts all this aside and just say, now let's look at it from a different manner. How do we get there? And that to me was, I would say, uh, in a way, culturally different, right? When we look at investment approach. Now, Dr. Anywhere was a competitive investment round. Wyman had his pick of investors. And alongside traditional VCs in the region, like us, SquarePeg, Wyman also had a huge network of some of the most prestigious international and institutional investors. And I asked Wyman to talk us through his approach to pulling together his round. I think to be a good venture capitalists, you have to be able to resonate with the founder. In the most recent round, Series B, you know, we have EDBI, uh, which is the government of Singapore. We have uh, Pavilion Cap, with, uh, which is the 100% subsidiary of the MASIC. Uh, we have IHH. They are the world's second largest hospital operator by market cap. And then obviously we have SquarePack, you know, uh, one of the largest Australian VCs. Now, uh, admittedly, SquarePack's offer of term sheet came in later, I would say. But in the end, why SquarePack? And by the way, maybe let me just you know, give you another background to this. The first term sheet that was given to us was actually by a consortium which comprises of Pavilion Capital, 
IHH and EDBI. And then Tusha came in being this you know very friendly neighbor of yours, uh, totally understand you know what you're saying, or at least he was nodding his head and agreeing to whatever that I say. And then he said, "Look, why man, you know, why don't I give you term sheet as well, right?" And I think that's what made the difference, right? Not not to say that the, the first consortium they were not friendly, right? Uh, but I think from a Tusha perspective, when he approached me and when he was asking me the questions that I have been thinking about for, for, for a long time and trying to find an answer to, and I felt back then, right, and I still think so, that he's able to guide me because he has, he has been dealing with many founders. And I think at the core of it, I have this strange feeling that, and also after interacting with a few people from Squarepack, that it's like a family, right? And a family will not give up on you when issues arise, right? And that is something that I thought it would have been a very nice to have, if, if not, we need to have. But at the same time, we also have very good investor profile from those that I mentioned earlier on. So then it was quite an art for me or a skill to merge these two parties into one and ultimately to complete the transaction. And now I think we are all working uh, quite well. You know, uh, everyone is in a way happy. Uh, I'm quite happy, you know, as an investing company for them uh, because I realized that overnight, uh, on top of uh, Kamet Capital, my very first Series A anchor investors, uh, they have also been extremely um, helpful and supportive. They've been investing in every single round thereafter, right? Uh, and they've also been giving very good advice. But with this enlarged group of investors right now, we realized that our sphere of influence has increased tremendously, right? Just by, for example, if now we look at uh, Hong Kong market, we look at the uh, Malaysia market, or if in the future, if we even look at like, you know, the Middle Eastern market, I can always tap on IHH. They have huge presence in all these countries, right? When I want to look for, you know, a Singapore perspective, I will look for EDBI or thematic, right? Uh, and if I want to tap into, you know, some relationship, some, some other parts of the world, uh, Thermastic is a very good platform, right? And because I'm from there, I know how they operate. Uh, and ultimately, even for Squarepack, right? That insight into how to grow a starting company into a mature company to create a high growth, right? And that's something that I, I, I can also now tap on the knowledge of Tusha. This whole thing has been, I, I would say, a very good outcome for us. Wyman thinks there is one critical skill that all founders need to optimize for, alongside, may I add, the ability to make decisions. And that is to be open-minded. I think you have to be open-minded, right? You have to be open-minded in a lot of aspects, from understanding that your initial idea does not work, right, to listening to what feedback from your users, from your employees, investors, so and so forth, and then to make tweaks to pivot, right? This would have been you know, a very important element of what I think a founder needs to have, right? The ability to, to, to be flexible. Uh, and at the same time, you also have to be open-minded to management team changes, right? Employee changes, right? Because we are living in a very demanding environment. We are going for aggressive growth and 
admittedly, I think um, startup is not for everyone. The burnout rate is very high, right? And when you look at employees, and that's something that we are also facing right now, which is I think we have to admit that some of our employees are facing burnout issues, right? And the question is, how do we rejuvenate the energy level to bring them back up to when they first join us to be the energetic, to be positive, and to believe in the company's growth and go again. Right. So that is something that we are also working on right now. And also with an open mind, you will also be quite open to then thinking about what your vision was, right? And think about what and how that should change. As for what's next for Wyman and the Dr. Anywhere team, it's all about growth. People were talking about how great this pandemic is to the telehealth business. Uh, and technically, the start of DA was actually preparing for COVID. Technically, right? You think about it, you know, in a sense, the start of Doctor Anywhere as a business was has actually been preparing for a pandemic. So for us right now, the question is, how do while everyone is trying to still prepare for COVID-proof business model, we are now thinking about how to build a post-COVID world sustainable business model, right? And the world would have changed. Consumption of healthcare has changed tremendously over the past few months. We know because we also own offline clinics, we could see how a lot of users were avoiding offline visits, in-person visits, and they are all now going online, right? The question for us right now is, how do we make sure that we keep the users online right so yes i agree that they'll be they'll be bound to be drop off uh people might go back to physical visits when things are more stabilized uh, but the question for us is how do we create this that stickiness that we we were looking out for in healthcare to our users online right and part of it you know, counterintuitively, it's actually how do we fuse that online experience with offline experience? If we are able to fuse these two together and, you know, remove that gap, it becomes very blurry because from a user perspective, it doesn't matter if I'm doing this online and offline because I'm getting, you know, the same type of treatment, I'm getting the same type of effectiveness for treatment. And that is something that at VA we are working very hard on right now. You know, and this would affect a lot of things from product to healthcare network, so the clinics, hospitals that's within our network, how we work with them using tech to gel the both together, right? This 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 is a very important growth factor for us going forward. That's it for our conversation with Lim Waimun, the founder and CEO at Dr. Anywhere. If you want to check out their platform, you can do so at dranywhere.com. Thanks as always to our wonderful producer, Rami, who this week worked around my ridiculous schedule as I moved house. And also thanks to you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.